0: Hi everybody, today's podcast is another neuroscientist talk shop retrospective. This time we're revisiting our podcast number 7 from March 6, 2008 with John Lisman. The podcast was hosted by Salma Karashi. Also participating were David Sinsman, Brian Derrick, Todd Troyer, and me. I'm Charlie Wilson.
1: Hi, everyone. It's March 6th, 2008. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, University of Texas at San Antonio's neurobiology podcast. I'm Salma Karashi. This week we we're very lucky to spend some time with John Lissman. John is currently professor of biology at Brandeis University's Volan Center for Complex Systems. A biophysicist by training and a visionary at heart, his research interests and accomplishments are varied and pervasive in the field. He's moved effortlessly between diverse fields like phototransduction, the neural code, memory systems, all using an experimentalist's tools and a theoretician's meta-perspective to link molecules directly to behavior. John sat down with us to talk about some of his perspectives on the neural code, theta-gamma oscillations, and integrative approaches to looking at the brain. Thanks for joining us.
0: To get started, Salma got John talking about one of his favorite topics, the way neurons use action potentials to convey meaningful signals to each other. His seminar earlier in the day had been on the theta-gamma coding scheme for the hippocampus, an idea he was working on at the time. He begins with a critique of rate coding, which is the most common idea about how neurons communicate.
1: Well, when you collect spikes, you've got to plot them up somehow, <laughs> and um, I mean the uh-huh. easiest thing to do is just to plot them up as a rate, as a function of time, and I think that you know we now have very clear examples of where that is really throwing away a lot of information in the hippocampus, if you throw away the phase information, and by that I mean the fact that the spikes occur during an ongoing theta oscillation, and so each spike can be assigned a phase, you know, it's been very, very clearly demonstrated that you lose a lot of information that is encoded by the phase of those spikes. And so, in the hippocampus, uh, it would really be silly to to restrict oneself to the plotting of data, the analysis of data based on rate. And in my view, you know, what's so upsetting about a, a rate code is it doesn't even make any sense in the context of of real brain operations of the sort that we do all the time. What do I mean by that? I mean, for a human to respond in 250 milliseconds uh, is is quite reasonable. That whole memory search uh, that I described in my talk had a, a period of 300 milliseconds. So for a person to say, you give them a list... The short list, and then you ask them, was this item on the list? And 300 milliseconds, they're combing through their memory, they're, they've done perception, they've done motor control, 300 milliseconds later, bam, there's the answer. Well, in rate coding, I mean, to make it any kind of sensible concept of rate, you have to integrate spikes over 100 milliseconds. So how many operations can you do if each one integrates over 100 milliseconds? You know, you could, we do three operations. That's not much if you, you know, you have to re- distinguish between all the letters and control your motor program. And and so we need to be thinking about neural operations that can be done in 10 milliseconds. Then you can stack a lot of them on top of each other. So that is, you know, one other view, that let's find codes that that work on a time scale that is suitable for high-speed brain computation.
0: One strength of the rate-coding idea is the ease with which we can imagine the rate of a train of spikes being read and used by the neurons receiving it. David Sinsman asked John to say something about how spikes from neurons using theta-gamma code could be interpreted by other cells.
1: Have you thought a lot about how you might look at the um, read out of the codes. Now with regard to the question of of being sensitive to a particular theta phase well in the kinds of models that I've been thinking about or analyzing and, and the data it looks as if in the hippocampus if you were sensitive to old spikes in the late theta phase it would be a long-range prediction. It would be saying, you know, way down there, you will find X. Whereas, if you were sensitive to spikes at early theta phase, it would be a short-range prediction. So you could imagine that different structures might be very interested in getting long-range or short-range predictions. So how could you be, how could you have these target structures sensitive to theta phase. Well, Ole Jensen uh, has worked out some theoretical models of this and conceptually they're very simple. You have to have sort of an additional theta signal going to these target structures but offset and then you use some principle by which that cell will only fire if there's input at this peak of this theta reference signal, which is not difficult to imagine electrophysiologically. Okay, so that's a nice model of how you could make a phase-sensitive detector.
0: I asked John if there was a catalog somewhere of all possible neural codes and their properties and where they're used in the nervous system or whether we're just starting out fresh trying to discover this stuff.
1: I mean, as far as I know, there has... Been too little thinking about this issue, and and I can name a few that I've heard about uh, that you know we haven't talked about here yet today, but I bet you you know smart people could come up with others, and um, and, and and we could proceed from there. So, for instance, in the way I'm thinking about gamma, which is a sort of forty hertz oscillation. My way of thinking, and I think there's some support for this in the hippocampus, is that the jitter of spikes within a gamma oscillation, that is, you know, two or three or four milliseconds, are not important. And that a downstream neuron could just lump this together and not lose information. This stands in contrast to you know, models that Wolf Singer has been putting forth which is that one or two millisecond differences within a gamma cycle are in fact important so now he's talking about a phase code which is similar to the kind of phase code I believe but on a different time scale the phase code that I believe in is that spikes that have different phase in respect to a theta cycle carry different information. So that means that the different ensembles having different phase have, are are fine 20 milliseconds apart from each other and within an ensemble one or two milliseconds doesn't make any difference. So what Singer is talking about is an incredibly more sophisticated timing operation where let's say one item would be coded uh, for, you know, centered around t equals zero during a gamma cycle, and some other uh, ensemble would be coded for by a group of cells that fired together two milliseconds later. That kind of precision. So, okay, I mean, these are interesting alternatives. Still another code that, that I've been very interested in uh, is what I call the burst duration code. So it's not only uh, that a cell bursts, and, but bursts, in fact, are not stereotyped. And so, uh, you know, we've plotted data from the thalamus, and you can see bursts uh, that vary from two spikes to five spikes. So, why is that so interesting? Well, a burst involves spikes that are incredibly fast. They're going as fast as the nervous system can fire spikes, pretty much, right? And as a result, uh, in a burst duration code, you're getting graded information through a communication channel, you know, in 15 milliseconds. You can say, well, this was strong, this was weak, this was in between. That's pretty impressive to get graded information through a channel in 15 milliseconds. Um, So I think that that it's very exciting to to have other codes and one thing that remains to be seen again is whether there's uh, even codes that can be built on codes. So for instance, one thing that I've been wondering about is the importance of bursts. So in the hippocampus, at least some neurons respond with very high-frequency bursts, and one very radical idea would be that these bursts are the neuron trying to say, listen to me, I really have figured something out. Whereas just an isolated spike now and then could well be noise. And facilitating synapses, which are numerous in the brain, respond selectively to bursts. And so it's not completely unreasonable to say that, you know, the important signals could be these very high-frequency bursts, and that neuroscientists who are collecting brain data might not only be wise to, to follow oscillations and and to plot things, plot how their spikes relate to oscillations, but also throw out all the non-burst spikes. Now that's a very extreme point of view, which I wouldn't (laughs) want to to generalize, but still it it could be part of the analysis to ask, well, you know, is this a region of the brain that generates bursts? Is it talking to a region of the brain uh, brain that has got facilitating synapses that are sensitive to bursts, in that case, I might better understand the communication of signals by throwing away the, the, the low-frequency spikes.
0: Todd called John on the idea of throwing away possible information in single spikes and was rewarded with a sample of John's humor.
1: So you've got to be careful about throwing away. I mean, isn't part of the whole problem was that, that people have been... You know, a, a whole community has been only looking at spikes and throwing away all the intrinsic oscillations. <laughs> okay, right. fair enough, fair enough. I, I tend to go to extremes just to make things <laughs> dramatic.
0: <laughs> With that, Salma asked John about his unique and highly successful scientific style and his method of extending experimental results to theoretical generalities.
1: I always describe myself as sort of an engineer first, even though I never... Or a physicist first. That whenever I have attacked a problem, it's always been, well, how could I do it? You know, if it was... You know, if I were to build a little memory switch, how in the hell can I do it out of protein? And that was one of the things that I got... that, that just puzzled me. And... Um, Oddly enough, um, you know, I was walking down the beach one day, and I was still working in photoreceptors at the time, working on rhodopsin uh, as a molecular switch, but thinking already about you know memory as needing molecular switches, and you know all of a sudden saw a rather trivial way of using positive feedback autocatalysis. That to make a memory switch, and this has you know, been something that I've gotten a lot of recognition for. But I, in a sense, it was the it, I mean, you could walk up to almost anybody in any field and sort of say, well, well you know, if you want to take proteins and you want to build a switch, you know, how would you do it?" And they'd probably come up with the answer pretty quickly. It's like so posing the question in the sense, well, okay, we have dendritic spines and it seems like each one has a synapse which is independently modifiable with an independent memory and then saying, well, okay this this means that the memory is not in the cell body this means that the memory is out at the synapse itself this means that the synapse is likely to be made, that the switch the memory switch is likely to be a protein so how would you build it That was the hard part, getting to that point. Once you get to that point, you can walk up to almost anybody and say, well, can you come up with an idea of how to to build it? But anyway, the point is is that you need to develop mental models, which then allow you to design experiments. I feel like part of my success has been that That I kind of have a sense for the experiments, and at the same time enough guts to go out there and speculate wildly, and ultimately any theory is a wild speculation, but, you know, it has to be done.
0: John was famous for his theoretical insights, but he did not rely heavily on formal mathematical methods. We asked him about the use of mathematics and simulations in his
1: work. And I, I do believe in the necessity of simulation. That is to say, once you sort of have an idea and you think and you can draw it and you say, I bet it'll do something. I bet you can build a machine based on these principles. I think it's really worthwhile to have the capability of, of actually simulating it. Because it's in my experience, uh, I've been wrong a lot. That is, once I really get serious enough to, you know, plot out all the variables and say, "Well, you know, this is this and this and this," you know, I find that my intuition was wrong sometimes. And 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 so you need the feedback plus. Just the seriousness of listing all the variables, that in itself is a great exercise. Because, you know, until you got serious about it, you hadn't even thought of this variable as important. And so, so I I mean, I would be an absolute advocate that people who want to do this approach will ultimately have to prove to people that they can build a network that does this. That's the gold standard. Now, whether they have to use mathematics to prove that it could do it, you know, I don't know.
0: He also shared his thoughts about the benefits and the pitfalls of computer simulation.
1: If you proceed without enough constraints, even a large-scale model will be just wasting your time. And so this is, I think, why it's still a matter of artistry. You have to sort of find that some places which are really constraining you, so you just aren't wasting your time. Um, and, And that's why if you can build upon further and further constraints, it's so helpful because you won't go off in all kinds of wild directions. On the other hand, I do believe that you can really learn a lot just by trying to build a solution to a problem even if it isn't ultimately going to be the way the brain solves it just because until you become an engineer trying to solve a problem you can't really envisage in a sense the algorithmic solutions that are required so in that sense completely unconstrained solutions can be mind sharpening for the neuroscientists
0: selma asked john about the mysterious function of the peptide co-transmitters and he used this occasion to share some thoughts on the importance of biological detail at the cellular and network levels
1: you know, in the end you know you cut open the brain and they're just a bunch of cells, and so we just have to learn all the tricks that cells have at their disposal, and and those are the tricks which are the building blocks uh, of the mind. And um, you know, I've watched uh, the development of of ideas about many aspects of this. So there was a time when people said, "Oh." look at short-term synaptic plasticity facilitation and depression isn't that boring who cares and then you know we've gone through a kind of revolution over the years and people are now saying wow look look what you can do computationally with facilitation and depression and um, and that's exactly you know what should be our our goal is to take the building blocks you know that, that that we see and which sometimes see bore, seem boring and say well okay what are these things good for and um, you know and uh, I'm, I'm not totally convinced that we have a, a really good picture of many of these things including you know why are there these peptides it's just it's such a striking thing and there's such an enormous diversity of them um in at least you know so. I'd like to see more thinking about that little, not little, but big aspect. And but probably there aren't that many, you know, cell cellular processes that we could think about that we, in a sense, don't have I- good ideas about. I don't know. We we could probably sit down and, and, and make a list. I mean how many how many things do cells do? Just as you know understanding the brain must necessarily entail you know understanding how neurons and their little bag of tricks work together to make things happen it's equally incumbent upon us to to say that you know the wiring diagram and the and the circuitry makes sense you know this is how it is actually done that I think it's only, you know, when you're down to this, to that level of, of analysis, you know, how do the molecular constituents make a cell do this set of things, and how does that contribute to the circuit function, and how do the multiple circuits interact, and how does that interaction produce behavior, when you can satisfy all of those things, then... You are entitled to say, well, okay, to a first approximation, we understand something about how the brain works, which is where we all want to go, and I am actually an optimist in thinking that we will get there.
0: The problem of understanding the brain as he posed it seemed daunting, and progress seemed so slow, yet he was certain that we were doing the right thing and would ultimately succeed. John explained his positive attitude using a puzzle metaphor.
1: Well, one one analogy is to the general problem of puzzle puzzle solving. And I think if you're doing a crossword puzzle, even, you know, at first it seems impossible, but then when you sort of build a piece of the pattern, it becomes much easier to place an individual piece, you know, next to its neighbor. And, and my overall feeling is that, that that's gonna be the way the problem of, of solving the brain proceeds that, that first of all, you have to keep on bringing all the pieces together. It may not, you, you may not see the light, but then there's gonna become a sudden point where it's gonna become much more rapid. Not necessarily instantaneous, but but it it, it it it's not a linear process. It starts out very slow, and then it gets much faster, and that's because you can start you know to build on relationships. So, for instance, you know if you can gain some confidence about the kind of coding system that the hippocampus works, it utilizes uh, that gives you a kind of constraint to say, well, if the basal ganglia listen to the hippocampus, then you know, it's got to be able to understand information in the way the hippocampus formats data. And and so that's an example of how progress in one area can suddenly constrain the almost infinite thoughts that you might have about some other structure. And then and and and, and so knowledge will precipitate.
0: I hope you enjoyed that memory of John Lisman. When it seems to me that progress is too slow, I always remember John's prediction that knowledge will precipitate. John Lisman passed away in October of 2017. He and his unique approach to neuroscience are greatly missed, and I hope this podcast captured a little bit of John's spirit for those who did not get to know him. In any case, it was great to hear his voice again. Thank you for listening. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Show.